0: Lord, help us to see and hear the things you mean for us this morning as we look in your word. Amen. We are finishing majoring in the minors this morning. It's kind of bittersweet when you start a project like a teaching series. This one was 12 books long, a little bittersweet to end. It's fun, and hopefully it's been encouraging and edifying. But we wind up this morning in the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, Malachi if you're of an Italian persuasion. <clears throat> Malachi is the last book in our Old Testament. This isn't true, by the way, if you're reading a Hebrew Bible, Second Chronicles would be the last book. But Malachi is the last book in the English arrangement of the Bible. It's also the last, though, chronologically. Malachi, around 400 to 430 B.C., somewhere in there, Malachi is the last of the prophets. Malachi is the last of God's written revelation in the Old Testament period. In fact, after Malachi, Malachi's ministry or the end of his ministry begins what theologians call the 400 silent years because from Malachi to the Incarnation we have no written record, no prophetic utterance from God for that 400 year period. So Malachi is extremely significant in this sense. Malachi was God's last word before the incarnation and I want to suggest that Malachi has unique importance in the Old Testament and then by application for us as well today because it's a last word because it's the last book in the Old Testament Uh, I grew up as one of 11 and I have many memories of my mom in which I think she was just teetering on the brink of sanity You know where sanity and insanity are side by side. She's teetering on the brink. And raising 11 kids like me would do that to you. So one of the things my dad did, dad would regularly take her to Kansas City for a weekend. They'd leave on a Thursday or Friday. They'd come home Saturday night. And this is the way it went. When they were dressed and their coats were on, they were in the front hall. They'd line us up on the stairs, and this is what they'd do. They'd warn us, and they'd promise us. And, and they'd warn us about, while we're gone, you mind the babysitter. You know, you do these things and you don't do those things. They'd warn us. And then they promised us. Now, the promise had two, two applications. The promise was, we're coming home. Now, on one hand, this is a good thing. We love mom and dad. We'll be glad to see them home. It's a good thing. On the other side, you know, depending on how you behave while we're gone, this return might be painful for you. So, their last word to us, before they left, for the silent period when we were entrusted to the babysitter, it was warning and it was the promise of a return. And that promise was a double-edged sword. Could go either way for us. Warning and return. And that's exactly what you see in the book of Malachi. And by the way, it's exactly what you see also in the book of Revelation. The New Testament last word. A book full of warning, and judgment and ends on the note of the promise to return the promise of God to return that's what we're looking at this morning because of that last words really they hold it kind of a unique value it's not as if Malachi or Revelation these books are inherently superior to the rest of the scriptures but they hold unique importance because they are those last words now if you or I were dying and we had only so much time or strength or energy left, and we wanted to say something to someone, we probably wouldn't be talking about planting the grass, we wouldn't be talking about other things. We'd only be saying the things that we thought were most important for them to hear before we left. So last words hold a unique importance, and that's certainly true of Malachi, and we'll mention at the end this morning of Revelation as well. Malachi has, what I'll focus on, four primary warnings... And then The Promise of the Return, which is again a double-edged sword. We're going to start with the four warnings. And by the way, if you're interested in Malachi, this is actually a book we taught through in depth at the beginning of this year. So that's online. Also, by the way, Eric has updated our website so that if you've had trouble or others have had trouble downloading messages in the past, those are all MP3 format now. And not only that, but the ones that were there are still there, but Eric has updated the whole thing so it goes back I don't know how far, but it's a few or several years at least, of 2001. So you could get more than you wanted, but it's there. Four warnings from Malachi. The first one is related to fearing or reverencing God. Malachi 1, verse 6, God says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, How have we despised your name? Answer, you're presenting defiled food on my altar. You say, How have we defiled you? You say, The table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 13, you say, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what's lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed is the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Now, <clears throat> we've not read all three, but in the opening verses of Malachi, three times God warns Israel and says, he's a great king and he is to be feared. This is something in our culture and in our day, just like Malachi's, we, we tend to want to think of God as fuzzy and cuddly and nice and safe, and harmless. And God opens His word, these last words through Malachi, and He warns His people, those in covenant relationship with Him, you don't fear me, and you should. You don't hold me in reverence the way you should. And I know this if for no other reason than the kind of offerings you present to me on my altar. Now, you know if you read the law that God had very clear prescriptions for the animals that were to be offered. They had to be without blemish. For most of the offerings, there were specific. Some could be females, most needed to be males. (coughs) Instead of this, though, giving their best, God was requiring their best on the altar, they were giving what was merely convenient, what cost them little or nothing. They were treating God, God infers here, like a cheap, third-rate politician he says what you're giving me you wouldn't even give to your governor you're treating me as less than the governor over you politically but he says three times I am a great God I am feared among the nations you should fear me their attitude and their actions were out of line because they didn't hold God in the kind of awe respect reverence and fear that he should we talked in Sunday School briefly about this notion of God out of the Chronicles of Narnia, in which one of the kids says of Aslan the lion, is he safe? And the, and the answer is, of course he's not safe. He's a lion, but he's good. And that's the thought here. God says he's not safe. He is fearful, and he's awesome, and he is to be feared, even by those who know him. Even by those who are safe, as it were, in relationship with him, he says, You're doing wrong, you're missing the mark because you don't fear me as you should. His first warning says he calls them to wake up, to fear him, to reverence him. And that would be displayed in the kinds of things they gave God. They would give God their best, not their leftovers, not what was convenient. <clears throat> Excuse me. The second warning is to priests, and in this aspect, it's to those who were leading in Israel. Malachi 2, verse 1. This commandment is for you, O priests, if you don't listen, if you don't take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts. I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them, because you're not taking it to heart. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. You'll be thrown out like the trash. Verse 8, But as for you, you've turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I have also made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality and instruction. By the way, did I read the passage on? I may have edited myself right out of this. I think I did. Uh, If you read the passage in Malachi, God compares the priests of Malachi's day with Phineas. He says the covenant of Levi, but if you actually read it in context, it's clear he's not talking about Levi, the patriarch. He's talking about Phineas, who accompanied Moses in the wilderness. And when, when Israel was disobedient to God in the wilderness and was marrying Midianite women, God's reproving the nation, and during his reproof, this guy comes up. I think the woman's name was Cosby. With this Midianite gal, brings right in front of all the people of the nation as God is reproving them, because, of course, to marry foreign women meant to worship foreign gods. And in the midst of this, Phineas slays these two people before God, and his zeal for God and God's honor, his fear of God, stops the plague that God had set in motion to destroy or discipline his people. And people had already died. And it was Phineas' zeal and fear for God that stopped the plague. And in Malachi's day, God is telling the priest, you've got to be like your ancestor Phineas. He feared me. He reverenced me. And the impact of his ministry and leadership was that he preserved life. His example and his leadership had the effect of preserving life. The priests in Malachi's day were like the priests and the leaders in Jesus' day. Do you remember when Jesus looks at the leadership of the day? He says, you take those, your converts, and you make them more fit for hell than they were before. So the priests in Malachi's day, their example was tearing people down. It was leading people in the wrong way. These men with the responsibility of teaching the law. And verse 7 in that passage says, The lips of a priest should preserve knowledge. Men should seek instruction from his mouth for he's a spokesman. He's a Malachi, a messenger of the Lord of hosts. That was the thought. That's what they were supposed to be. But instead, through word and action, they were setting an example for the nation that was leading the nation further in destruction. And God calls through the second warning. He says to the leaders in Israel, wake up and lead in righteousness like your ancestor Phineas did. Wake up, fear me, and lead appropriately. The third warning has to do with relationships. Specifically here in Malachi, it has to do with marriage and divorce. Malachi 2 verse 11 God says Judah has dealt treacherously. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. And remember in these days uh, nations weren't inherently atheistic like communist nations of, of our last hundred years might claim today. Nations worshipped gods. Nations followed certain gods. To align yourself with a person from another country unless they converted to Judaism meant you were also embracing another god. And that's what God says is happening. Judah was, again in Malachi's day, marrying primarily men, marrying women, from other nations, meaning they were embracing the worship of other gods. In verse 14, he goes on to say, The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Verse 16, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The treachery was two parts. One, it was marrying people not aligned with Yahweh. It was marrying people that would draw the Jews away from God and then it was also it was the issue of divorce occurring within the families in Israel. I'm not going to say much about the first I want to focus on the second. You guys know divorce was never God's plan. In fact when Jesus is queried about this in the New Testament he says you know from the beginning it wasn't like this. Divorce was never God's plan it was a concession to our hard-heartedness Jesus says in the New Testament. And God here says he hates divorce and there's at least two reasons. One is because of divorce's inherent, incredibly destructive nature. And you know, there's probably not one of us in this room who hasn't been touched by divorce. Either we've been divorced, someone in our family's been divorced, our friends are divorced, whatever. It's, you know, we didn't invent divorce, but boy, we've, we've popularized it. We've spread it around. You know, to the degree you know anything about divorce, it is an incredibly tearing, destructive, disruptive process it is inherently uh, incredibly destructive. God says he hates divorce, and this has got to be one of the reasons why. It's destructive by its very nature. The second reason also, and there's probably others, but the second reason I think that this is so important to God is because of this. Families on the earth were always meant to display, to be living, walking examples of the Trinity's love and consideration for themselves, and God's love and consideration for us. And just, just briefly, God is unity in plurality, so we've got the Father, we've got the Spirit, and we've got the Son. In fact, in Ephesians 4, Paul says every family, every father's household on earth derives its name, that's, that is its origin, from God the Father. Every family on earth derives its inherent nature from God himself. And families and marriages were meant to be living demonstrations on earth of the love within the Trinity as well as God's love for us. So it means it's faithful, it's considerate, it's, it's serving others, it's putting the needs of others above your own. It's this loyal love. And we'll look at this probably next year in some teachings we'll do on the person of God. But if you do a study in the Bible, I believe you'll see that if, related to the description of God, the first one is that God is holy. And the second one is that he is loving or he, he demonstrates faithful love, loving kindness, hesed or kessed. And marriages and families are supposed to be living, breathing demonstrations of this kind of faithful love. So when divorce comes in, especially as a norm, it's wrecking, if you will, the living illustration God meant to be on the earth in which you would see demonstrated God's love within the Trinity and God's love. For man, this faithful, hanging in there, long-suffering love. That's what God wants demonstrated through marriages and through families. And it reveals him. And you guys know this. If you've been raised in a family which was filled with love and concern and, and care for each other, you realize when you get out in the larger world how beneficial to you that is and you realize the way it sets you up for your thought about what marriage should look like. Or if you've come from a family in which that wasn't present, and you get out into the larger world and you see that elsewhere, you feel the lack of it too. It's it's very, very important. And this is one of the reasons why I'm convinced the enemy of our souls attacks marriages and families because of its inherently destructive nature, and he's a destroyer and a murderer, and also because it mars the image of God on earth, which is supposed to be the members of a family loving and serving each other the way the Trinity does, deferring to each other in honor, as it were. So the third warning is about faithfulness, primarily demonstrated in marriages, and God says He wants His faithful, loyal love demonstrated in marriages. The fourth warning is Giving God His due. The first one was about fearing and reverencing God, and giving God your best. The last one is about giving God His due. Malachi 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? You say, however we robbed you? God's answer in tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse because you're robbing me, the whole nation. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. In the covenant in which God existed with Israel, the covenant of Sinai, the law of Moses, God commanded, he required Israel to give him the first tenth. And if you read this, the first animal that was born to a ewe or a cow or whatever was his also. But Israel was to give God the first ten percent, the first tenth of all of their increase. And that first tenth basically went to the priesthood, to the temple, to the Levites. It supported all of God's work, basically, in the nation. But he said to Israel, give me the first tenth. As part of the covenant, God said, when you obey me, including here in the finances, when you obey me, I will bless you. And I'll protect you and defend you and I'll provide for you. So when Israel was in positions in which their material needs were not being met, and you can check this out historically, this is not the first time God reproves them for this, you'll typically see that they are not tithing. They're not giving the 10% that God required. You can see this in Haggai. One of the other minor prophets we we looked at, and I'm going to forget right now, sorry. But anyway, it's the same thought. When they were in periods of deprivation or want, God says, I'm not doing my part of the covenant, the agreement, because you're not doing your part. You're not giving. And when you give, you'll see that heaven itself can't be constrained. I'll rain, as it were, blessings on you from heaven. This did require, though, uh, faith or trust on the Jews part so when they're getting the first part of the crop in and maybe they don't know if it'll all get brought in or not or they'll get hail or wind or whatever and they give the first tenth to God they're doing so in trust that God's going to provide for the rest of their needs they're giving away trusting that God's going to provide for the rest of their needs. so when they don't give the required 10th and, and by the way there's other offerings as well but when they didn't give that it was a clear indication that either they didn't care about God or they didn't trust God. So God says, I believe this is the only place in the scriptures in which God says, test me, because otherwise he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. But he said, you fulfill your part of the covenant. You give as you were told, give as you were instructed, as the law required. And you watch me because I'll pour the blessings down from heaven above itself so that your needs will be provided for. Now, think about this... um, Think about Israel's history, how much faith or trust did it take to give with the expectation that God would in turn bless. I mean, they look back in their history and they're recalling the God who rained quail on them from nowhere in the wilderness. And the God that put manna on the ground for 40 years from nowhere. And the God that gave fresh water to a nation of probably a couple million from a rock, from a dry rock in a desert. So provision from God's perspective, this is not a problem. But he was not fulfilling his part of the covenant because they were not doing what was required. And it indicated a lack of trust, of faith, and perhaps of care. So God says in the fourth warning, you need to not just give me your best, you need to give me my due. And then see that I will fully meet all your needs. God gives them four warnings. Fear God, give Him your best, lead in righteousness, live in faithfulness in your marriages, we can expand this, and trust God by giving His due. Now, briefly, you guys know we aren't uh, offering our animals, our water buffaloes or our sheep or our goats or anything else on altars today, but you can still ask yourself if God is getting your best, that is... Do you and I fear God? Do we reverence God? Do we hold Him in the appropriate kind of awe that we should so that out of that awe we are giving Him our best just as the Jews were warned to, to give God their best meant they needed to fear Him, respect Him, hold Him in awe appropriately. Ask yourself in your own life, whatever that looks like, are you giving God your best or is He getting your leftovers? You know, I think for for many of us, if not most, oftentimes God's getting our leftovers. And God says that's f- that's from a failure to appropriately apprehend him and see him as he is, the fearful, awesome God that he is. In the areas in which we impact others, if you're a leader, what is your impact on those you're leading? <clears throat> you know, this could be you're a parent, you're leading your children. This could be you're a teacher, you're leading students. It could be you're an older person to an, a younger person you're leading by example. Or apart from uh, an above and below relationship, in the relationships you have with coworkers, with friends, with schoolmates, ask yourself this: by your words and actions, by your example, are the people you either lead or interact with? Are they better? or worse for the interaction they've had with you and from the example you've left them? Are they better or worse? In Malachi's day, they were worse for the example of the priest, just as they were in Jesus' day. What's the impact you and I are having on others that we either are responsible for in a leadership role or that we simply have interaction with? Are they better or worse for the interaction they've had with us and by the example we've set for them? God says, leave them an example that moves them closer to me, not further away. This one hits close to home. Are you and I demonstrating in our marriages the kind of faithful, long-suffering love and consideration for our spouses that God calls us to? And then don't, don't just leave it there. Some of us aren't married. That's okay. Also towards our children, towards our friends, towards those in the church, You can show faithful love to those who aren't Christians, consideration, and loyalty to those that God has put you in relationship with. Are you faithful in those? You guys know, politically, in the war in Iraq today, the phrase cut and run has been used uh, by our president, and it's seen as a negative. That is, things aren't going well, so the impulse is to cut, cut our losses, and run away. Well, that's exactly what goes on in families today, you know. Things get a little rocky. They get a little difficult. My marriage isn't convenient. It's not what I wanted. My friendship's not convenient. It's not what I wanted. My family members aren't what I wanted them to. It's a little rocky. It's a little dicey. And the impulse of the temptation is to cut and run. And God says that he wants for us, particularly in families, but it certainly goes out from there, he wants Christians to demonstrate towards those they're in relationship with his kind of faithful long-suffering love. And ask yourself, is that what exemplifies you? I've been extremely challenged personally by this concept in the last, I don't know, one, two, three years. Am I willing to stick things out when they aren't what I wanted? How much of God's faithful love in situations that would would appear less painful for me to just get away from, how much of God's faithful love is required of me God says that's what He holds dear. That's what He wants demonstrated. And then also, do you and I demonstrate through our giving that we understand that first, that God owns all that we are and all that we have? And then out of that understanding, are we free to give? Not 10%. You guys know 10% is not a New Testament principle. But Paul lays out New Testament principles for giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And he says, give generously, give sacrificially, Give cheerfully, give thoughtfully and prayerfully. Is that the kind of giving that is true of you and I today? Are we marked by generosity? Does that kind of attitude go with our giving? Are we not just giving God our best, but are we giving Him, as it were, His due? This should be true of us today too. And again, I would argue that to the degree that we find ourselves stingy, reluctant, uh, pathetic, in one way or another, givers. It's it's for a lack of knowing who God is, and it's a lack of trusting God and His provision for us. The same kind of principle is stated in the New Testament, that when we give to God first, He's dedicated to providing for our needs. And you can read lots of great biographies of Christians who have proven God in this very thing, have given to God first, and, and most, or if not all, sometimes and seen God come through and richly provide for their needs. So we can certainly take heart. A little different application than Malachi's day, but certainly applicable nonetheless. The parents are coming home, and God says that He's going to come home too. And His coming, His coming is going to be twofold. It's going to be fire on one hand, and it's also going to be healing on another. And the fire is a fire that uh, is both uh, refining and destructive. Malachi 3, verse 1. I'm going to send my messenger. By the way, Malachi means messenger, and it's, it's an important term in the book. It's used again here. I'm sending my Malachi. He will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant... We understand this to be the Messiah, the Lord coming to his temple. In whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, related to this coming, in verse 2 he says, Who can endure the day of his coming? You know, if the children have been disobedient when the parents are gone, they still look forward to mom and dad's return, don't they? Because they're glad to see mom and dad. But on the other hand, there might be this issue of settling accounts when mom and dad get back. Settling settling accounts. How would you do, Junior, while we were gone? And that's what happens here. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years." God's coming to his people, he says, on one level is going to be like a fire. That is a refiner's fire in which he's going to come, and this is a good thing, but there's going to be this painful but necessary application of God's judgment to their lives. And the pain is kind of the fire part, but the necessity of this is God wants to to clear the tables, as it were to set things right so they're good to go on. And so he's got to settle accounts. And so just like a parent coming home and they've they've heard Junior has torn the chandelier off the ceiling and buffeted the babysitter about the ears, well, he's still Junior and he still belongs to his parents, but mom and dad can't let that go, so they've got to discipline Junior. Afterwards, they're free to go on. Well, in Malachi's day, as in ours, all of us have mixed motives. We do some things well and some things less well. We're faithful in some things. We're not in others. And it's this picture of God's coming is going to be a refiner's fire. It's going to separate those things. It's going to set them apart. It's going to make clear what was for God and what wasn't. It's going to be refining. It's painful, but it's necessary. By the way, This is in the context of the second coming in Malachi 3 and 4. This is not true of Christians today, at least the setting and the timetable. The place are not the same. But the refining fires are the same. You know, if you read in 1 Corinthians 3 or 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says in both places that you and I will sit before the judgment seat or the Bema seat of Christ. And when we stand before him at this judgment seat, it's not a judgment about heaven or hell. It's not a judgment about are we saved or not. It's a judgment just like this in Malachi on our lives. And in both those texts, it says that it's a fire. 1 Corinthians 3, it says, it's like some elements of our life are wood, hay, and stubble. And they burn up. They don't survive the fire. But other elements of our life, it says, are gold, silver, and precious gems. The fire doesn't destroy them or harm them at all. But it reveals them for the value that they have. 2 Corinthians 5 is the same thing. So in Malachi's day, Jews look forward to a refiner's fire that comes with the second coming of Christ. Christians will face this same kind of fire, refiner's fire, when we stand before Christ at the judgment seat, the bema seat of Christ. By the way, this is another motivation for right living. Uh, Paul says also in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about knowing the fear of the Lord. I know, uh, I'm kind of a big guy. My dad was a big guy. He was my size. And when I was a little guy, he was a little intimidating. And more so at some times than others. And I had a fear of my dad. I love my dad. My dad took care of me. But I had a fear that was Appropriate. Well, we're supposed to have and be infused and be motivated by that same kind of fear. I know my dad and I know he loves me. I know he says there's nothing in heaven or earth, time or eternity, that can separate me from his love, but I fear him. And I know I'll stand before Christ at this seat, and I know I'll give account. And you know what? That fear is healthy, and it motivates me. It constrains my behavior. It makes me do things I don't want to do. It keeps me from doing things I shouldn't do. It's an appropriate fear. I know I'm going to stand before my Maker and give account. This is a good thing. So God's going to come. It's going to be a fire. It's going to refine. His fire also has, though, another effect. Malachi 4, verse 1. The day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In contrast... To a refiner's fire purging and removing dross and leaving pure elements, gold and silver, in contrast to that, the fires here are entirely judging and destructive. And the people here are chaff, it says. They are, the metaphor chaff is used. That is, they're of a substance that is simply burned and gone by a fire. In fact, it says there won't be a root or a branch left. The destruction is entire. It's total. There's no thought of refining here. There's no thought that it's silver and gold with some dross in it. It's chaff. And by the way, if you do a word study, in the Old Testament especially, but it includes the New, chaff is a common image for what God calls the wicked. Read Psalm 1, one of the best known, Psalm 35, Exodus 7, I think. The wicked are chaff. Well, for them... God's coming is a fire that brings destruction and judgment. There's nothing left. There's nothing to refine. They're not in relationship with God. They're his enemies, and they're destroyed by the fire of his coming. By the way, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 is one of the most graphic presentations in all of Scripture of the same thought, that when Jesus Christ comes in his second coming to the earth, he is a fire, and it's a fiery judgment on those who don't know him. And you can struggle, if you will, with the wrath of God and with His hatred for those who oppose Him, with His enemies. But there it is. And He says, for some when He returns, He's a fire that doesn't bring refining. He doesn't leave you better than you were, so to speak. It's a fire of judgment and destruction. So on one hand, His coming is fire. It refines some. It destroys other. The flip side of that is Malachi four verse two. But for you who fear My name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings. You'll go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. This is kind of like Matthew 25, again, at the second coming. Matthew 24 and 25, prophetic images of the second coming of Christ. And in chapter 25, Jesus is getting ready to set up his kingdom on earth. And what does he do? He says he separates the people and the nations like the sheep and the goats, like a shepherd would. And he says to the sheep, enter the kingdom that's been prepared for you. Well, that's exactly the thought here in Malachi 4.2. It says, at Christ's coming for his own, it's going to be like the sun rising and bringing healing with it after a time of pain or disease or destruction. And you'll be filled with joy and vitality like a little calf skipping, that's been fed, skipping out of the stalls. If you guys have seen fat, heavy cattle, you know, waddling through the pastures, that's not the thought. If you've seen those little spring calves, you know the way they, they jump and they romp around. That's the thought here. It's that you're unburdened, you're free, you're full of joy and energy and vitality. That's what the second coming will mean for those who know Christ. It'll be that kind of thing. Enter the joy of your master. Let me wind down with uh, two final applications. Um, You guys know that we don't live in the day of Malachi. This was God's last word for Israel. Malachi was. And this preceded those 400 silent years before the incarnation. But then, you know, the Lord did come to his temple suddenly. And someone did prepare the way for him, John the Baptist. But, of course, in that first sudden appearance, he was rejected by his own And then he was crucified on a cross to pay for the sins of the world, because this was God's predetermined will, the apostles say in Acts, to pay for the sins of the world. He rose from the dead, then he ascended back into heaven, and it says right now he sits at the right hand of the Father to wait for his second coming. He's doing some things. He's interceding for us in heaven. He's welcoming his own. Stan did a great job talking about Stephen in Acts 7 not long ago, and If you notice in Acts 7, it says actually Jesus is standing in Acts 7 when Stephen is being stoned. The thought is kind of he's rising to his feet both in attention and in welcome of one of his own. So today Jesus is in heaven. He came that first time. He was rejected, but he paid for your sins and mine. He sits in heaven today. We await his second coming, his coming again to the earth. Meanwhile... Jesus did leave us, Christians, the church, some last words also. Let me close with these. Matthew 28. Jesus says, one of his last words, last words in the Gospel of Matthew at least, go into all the world, make disciples, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even to the very end, to the end of the age, I'm with you. Go and make disciples, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. That is the mandate that we are under as the church, as Christians today. Go and make disciples, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Baptize them. Acts 1 is also a last word. Do you remember just before Jesus leaves? Acts 1 says, you're going to be my witnesses. Wait in Jerusalem, you'll get the Spirit, and then you'll be my witnesses. Our last mandate, go and make disciples, also uh, bolstered, if you will, in Acts 1 by saying you are to be my witnesses. You can read about this in the Upper Room Discourse too where Jesus says you're going to be given the Spirit and you're going to be witnesses for me. That's what Christians, that's what the church is in the world today to do, to be martyrs, the Greek term for witness, witnesses for Christ in his absence. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're his ambassadors, the same thought. We're witnesses in the world for Christ. We're his ambassadors. Those are the final commissions, if you will, Jesus gave us. And let me close with this out of Revelation 22. Just as Malachi closed with this promise of a coming of God to his own, Revelation does the same thing. In Revelation 22:11, 11, it says, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. The one who is filthy still be filthy. There's this thought that when... Christ returns. It's both to those who honor him and are in relationship with him and those who don't, those who are his enemies. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Why? Well, behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Thought of judgment again, of of, uh, Christ sifting the works, as it were, commending what he can, getting rid of what he can The response to this is, in verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, or return. And let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, spiritually, for life, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. This is God's final appeal in the scriptures for people to come to him for life. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Malachi was the last book. It was a word of warning, with the promise of return. Revelation, the last book for us, last book of the New Testament and the Bible, same thing, book full of warnings, judgments, but also with the final thought of Christ is coming. And you know, in the end, that is supposed to be the guiding light, if you will, for Christians today. It is the thought of the return of Christ. The early church lived in the hope that they would see Christ return. If you read Acts, you'll see that. We await his return from heaven. And we're supposed to live with that same hope. And you know, if you forgot everything else, but just thought this. Christ might come for me today. That would be enough to live life well. To give God your best. To lead well by example. To be faithful to others. To give God his due. That'd be enough. If I just thought, if I just remembered Christ might come today. Or I might die today. I might see Christ today. That's all I would need. That would be the only motivation I'd need to live life well. If I paid attention to that one thing. Behold, I come quickly. Wow. I better be ready. Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck by your faithfulness in both warning us and in promising us your rewards for faithfulness. Lord, you do make it simple. Uh, We tend to complicate things. And Lord, our own heart wars against us. Peter said our lusts wage war against our own souls. Lord, there's always a battle inside us and we're in a world in which the world, the flesh, and the devil oppose your will in our lives. Help us to live as those who fear you, Lord, who know you well enough to fear you, who love you and want to give you our best. And Lord, help all of us to live in a way such that we don't want to draw back when we hear about your coming, but that we want to rush forward like children seeing their parent at the end of the day. Lord, thanks for your promise to return and to reward us, Lord, for all the things that you can. Help us to live with that hope in Jesus' name. Amen.